0: This is Terms of Reference podcast number 180.
1: One of the things we've done that's a bit radical when it comes to network formation is actually flipping the script. And though our mission statement is about building problem-solving networks, in fact, when it comes to the art and science of doing this, building the network is not really the North Star. The North Star is solving a challenge.
0: This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. You can't live in today's world without being witness to the power of networks. Networks are all around us and constantly influence us in ways both conscious and subconscious. Immediate family and close friends, global reaching social networks, professional networks, passion networks... The list of all the networks you're connected to goes on and on and overlaps and intersects in ways that solve problems, create opportunities, and catch us in some moments of incredible serendipity. So, as you might guess, networks are a powerful tool for the social sector. My guest for the 180th Terms of Reference podcast is exceedingly passionate about networks. Sarah Farley is the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of the Global Knowledge Initiative, an organization that builds purpose-driven networks to deliver innovative solutions to the world's most pressing problems. I think you're going to love this conversation about how networks can be leveraged to locate resources, enable collaboration, connect participants, and ultimately find solutions to problems. I spoke with Sarah in Washington DC, but as usual, before we get started, A quick word from our sponsor.
1: The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com.
0: Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Sarah, like so many of our guests, actually like all of our guests, you (laughs) are a woman of international mystery. Where do we find you sitting today?
1: You find me in Washington, D.C., and it's a perfect, perfect day. It's that pristine window between summer and fall when D.C. is actually quite livable. (laughs)
0: So that means it's sweater weather or (laughs) I I guess, you know, it's 70
1: degrees, light sweaters, smiles on the face and pumpkin latte.
0: Oh, wow. That's (laughs) delicious. That's fantastic. We're recording this in the the end. So actually, no, sorry, the beginning of October in 2017. So yeah, I can imagine October, DC, Halloween. That's fantastic. You are the co-founder, CEO and COO of something called an organization called the Global Knowledge Initiative as usual, rather than having me butcher an explanation, why don't we start out by you telling us about what exactly that is?
1: Sure thing. Well, GKI is a not-for-profit. We're an international organization with a mission to build problem-solving networks. And the way we go about doing that is really helping individuals, institutions, whole enabling environments embrace what we call collaborative innovation. So we're really trying to build the mindsets, the skill sets, the tool sets that make innovating a truly team sport as opposed to an act of solo, discrete, siloed actors.
0: Can you make that tangible for me? So is there a specific initiative you could take us down right now and and say, here's how we, we work with that enabling environment or we create a team around innovation?
1: So one of our first flagship programs, this is really the way we began to test some of the models that have really taken root at GKI It's a program called LINC, and that stands for the Learning and Innovation Network for Knowledge and Solutions. So the way LINC begins, there's a call for challengers. And we believe that local people in local contexts have the greatest clarity and insight into the challenges that are meaningful for them. So we made our first call in East and Southern Africa specific to a policy premium on trying to find innovative solutions to the challenge of low agricultural productivity. So there's this policy mandate called CODUP, the Consolidated Africa Agricultural Development Program. So we essentially put out the beacon and said, if you're an innovator, a researcher, a policymaker, an entrepreneur, and you are working on a specific agricultural food security challenge that would enable the objectives of CODUP, to be realized. Tell us what it is. As an organization, we're not here to give money. What we can do, if you make the case that what you need is a big network, a problem-solving network, we will help you find the resources, the individuals, and create the connective tissue that brings that network to life. So the winner of our first link call was a small team of researchers, just four people at the National University of Rwanda, now called University of Rwanda. There were a team of entomologists and they were scratching their heads over this challenge in specialty coffee, which is a really, really important crop in Rwanda, where you have 80% of the population living on subsistence farming and coffee being one of the most important cash crops and export crops. So essentially, there is this taste defect. These entomologists had a suspicion it was being caused by a particular insect, but they weren't sure. The chemical signature wasn't clear. The real consequence of this challenge was being felt by buyers, by farmers, but they weren't talking to each other. So cut scene, five years later, we went from four individual researchers to 30 institutions, There's a national agricultural strategy in Rwanda that creates an enabling environment for collaboration between research, private sector, government, the international coffee community, across the supply chain. We have a shared skill set of how to actually grow, build, and monitor networks. Seats at the table are occupied not just by entomologists, but by chemists, by engineers, by policymakers, by coffee roasters, coffee buyers, and importantly, by farmers. So it's it's an example of what this looks like, of what collaborative innovation means when you go from islands of individuals toiling with a challenge to a truly connected network guided with a shared aspiration. And getting that translation from a challenge to a problem-solving network that works—that's that's where GKI really is is in the field working.
0: And you know, you've described in an, in a number of different ways in that story. What exactly are you bringing to the table? Are you? Do you have people that are sitting there in Rwanda that are actively going out and finding these people and, and drawing them into the network? You said, you know, you don't provide funding, obviously, but are there other incentives that you put on the table? I'm just wondering, like, what are the tangible factors that you're putting out there?
1: Yeah, yeah, there are a few. So one, there is a small amount of catalytic funding that is used for things like meetings, travel maybe some of the conference fees where new practitioners that come into a network that develop or co-create a solution, they wanna get it out there, they want some reaction from the community, they wanna get into a conference, they can use this small amount of funding with some discretion as to sort of promote the activities of the community. So that's one incentive. A second is that we take a very agnostic view as to where resources and solutions live and may germinate so one of the, the large incentives here especially for government and private sector is that when we say yes to responding to a direct request to build a network we do an incredibly comprehensive systems analysis and resource taxonomy to figure out who's already at the table who's been working on a piece of this challenge for the last 15 years in rwanda that may not have been recognized publicly but whose advances are really critical to leverage at this time So I think there's a huge reward here in terms of connecting up a whole bunch of, you might call them latent resources that have a lot of potential to drive solutions, but haven't been validated one, haven't been sort of brought into a new construct to collaborate and to move forward. And then what we also do is we're providing the actual brokering services. So we are often in the room as the facilitator, though maybe another piece of the story we could get into where GKI wants to go increasingly is not to just serve as network facilitators ourselves, but to train others in that set of skills and methodologies to become the network facilitators. Mm. And that's actually what's happened in the Rwanda story. GKI at this point is no longer serving as network facilitator. The network itself has become so connected and developed that there are other local actors that are really moving this forward. And quite excitingly, USAID has now come in and put some money into growing and expanding the network even beyond Rwanda to Burundi and to DRC.
0: Is that like a, can I go get a master's degree in that? You know, is it a certifiable kind of thing, a, a network facilitator?
1: Well, you can get a PhD in network theory. So one of the things that's exciting here, there is this Really fascinating frontier of knowledge on the construct and the science of networks themselves. And I think there's been sort of a disconnect between the perception of what a facilitator is. We often think of a a sort of polished person who's eloquent and can hold the stage and kind of keep an agenda moving. And that's really important. That is absolutely can be a valuable ingredient to a convening the difference the way we think about network facilitation you actually have to know a fair amount about the structure of networks themselves what makes a network durable what is the monitoring evaluation around networks what are the signals we see within nodes or linkages within a network and we say silence means that node is probably not delivering or how is trust being generated or decreasing in a network knowing some of those dimensions in addition to the methodologies of just great facilitation that intersection we think is pretty special i don't know where you could go get a masters there but you could come to gki and we could certainly give you bowls <laughs> of methods here <laughs>
0: absolutely now that that's uh, you know The first thing when I first learned about GKI, where my mind went was, you know, I've been in the business for 15 years now myself, you know, and so many proposals I've seen and so many initiatives I've seen is, hey, we're going to go build a network. You know, conflict resolution is big on networks. Agriculture is big on networks. You know, networks are a big thing. How have you cracked the nut of measuring the impact of a network, of understanding its vitality, of being able to show either to a donor or to yourself or whomever that, this is a real living, breathing thing that can be manipulated, that can be made tangible.
1: I think one of the things we've done that's a bit radical when it comes to network formation is actually flipping the script. And though our mission statement is about building problem-solving networks, in fact, when it comes to the the art and science of doing this, building the network is not really the North Star. The North Star is solving a challenge. Subservient mm. to that and critical for it to occur, for it to succeed, is finding and connecting resources. Now, when we say resources, we don't mean money exclusively. Those resources might be technologies, humans, institutional resources, which might be, say, a policy, communication, and collaboration resources, knowledge resources. So we take a really sort of large, chunky definition of what we mean by resources. In service of connecting critical resources into the labyrinth of sub-challenges, those discrete pieces of a complex challenge that need to be addressed for a challenge to be solved, a network might be the mechanism that will move you furthest. So though we are are very pro-network here, the work itself is inverted. It's figure out the challenge and that gets into the collaborative act of problem framing and sense-making of complex systems. Because of course, these really wicked challenges are happening inside of complex adaptive systems that take a fair amount of work just to understand. And that's not something experts can just peer in and and tell the story. That must be a co-created sort of system story. So I think Part of this is the inversion, making it challenge-centric. Challenges are in the driver's seat, resources are second, networks might be the mechanism. And two, getting much more serious about infusing systems sense-making approaches inside of the work of network formation. And then three, taking a lot of risks in terms of how collaborative we can make each and every one of those acts, including developing the system sense-making tools themselves. How can we make that something truly collaborative instead of being the purview of a couple system specialists? So I think those three dimensions are part of what makes what we're doing here special, though I hope increasingly less special, which would suggest that it's becoming more more commonplace, which is what we want to see.
0: I don't know, much you might actually work yourself out of a job, which, you know, I chuckle at that. It's, it's sort of tongue in cheek just simply because that's that's really the nature of the work that we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to be ultimately solving these problems. How do you determine the challenges that GKI ultimately attacks or addresses or helps facilitate? Is it haphazard? Does it come to you through a network that you've created? Is there a specific strategy? I mean, you've obviously mentioned agriculture. Are there other key areas that you're looking in? Um, what's your identification yeah. process for what you're going to work on?
1: Yeah. Well, in the early days, it was a very sort of strategic sense making of where there was a policy mandate for change that was putting tremendous pressure on varying types of community groups, but particularly on researchers and then seeing the potential for collaborative innovation and networks to actually provide a step change in terms of the ability of those specific actors to meet that policy mandate. So that example I gave right at the beginning of caught up in Africa, which is looking at agriculture and by extension, both water and nutrition and climate just made a lot of sense compared to some other alternative starting points that we explored. And then what happens is things start to work. Some things don't work, but because things start to work, then there is a a sort of reputation and a buy-in from that sector that this is a mechanism that is worthy of exploration so i think we sort of cut our teeth in agriculture and water and that was really our story for say the first three years We then intentionally wanted to sort of push ourselves to open up to more sectors. And I think if you look at where we are today, we're getting more and more requests. All of this is request driven to work in health, to really healthier supply chains, for example, with USAID, education. We ran a, a large social innovation lab for the government of South Africa together with the World Bank. And we're really eager to get into climate, which would be a next place that would be really, really exciting to bring some of these tools. So it's a little bit of an evolutionary story and definitely a demand-led story.
0: Can I ask, where did you come from before you, (laughs) you know, has this been your passion for the last 10, 15 years? How did you stumble into co-founding GKI?
1: Well, I was with the World Bank for about 10 years as a science, technology, and innovation strategist. So I had the job of thinking about how an organization of that magnitude could use science and technology as tools for poverty reduction, economic growth, and sustainable development. I was there at a time that there was a a wonderful chief scientist named Bob Watson, and together we got to sort of write a critique of how the World Bank over the previous two decades had funded science, technology, innovation, where the gaps had been, where some of the sort of missing mechanisms had been. And one of the the big findings we had there was cross-sectoral, cross-regional investments in science, technology, and innovation are really few and far between. And what we know about the way knowledge moves, knowledge doesn't care about these silos and these boundaries we insert between ourselves. And there's nothing like the World Wide Web and ICT-led connectivity to expedite that movement. And yet some of the really large institutional structures are so behind the speed of that reality. And so as I worked at the World Bank and then worked with other institutions, African Development Bank, UNIDO as a... A sort of an architect of innovation policy, looking at integration of innovation systems work into these large bureaucratic structures and the policies that guide them, I started to feel like I needed to experience for myself how a grassroots, bottom-up approach to science, technology, innovation for development could work or might work better. And I think it was such an education to work in those very, very large organizations, it gave me such respect for the power both to enable and to thwart innovation that lives within an enabling environment and the policies being one dimension of it. But I think I've come to appreciate both how difficult and how imperative it is to marry, with a push on enabling environment, these Bottom up approaches that strive to connect all of the resources and individuals in a way that maximizes what the enabling environment is trying to do, which is to unleash innovation so that economies grow, poverty is reduced, and sustainability actually becomes something that we can hang our hats
0: on. You know, the next question I want to ask you is so it's like now you've cut your teeth, GKI is moving forward, you've got this very rich you know, sort of portfolio of initiatives that you're moving forward, how do you continue to evolve? You know, what's the next five years look like for you or maybe two to three years? Maybe I always ask five years and I'm like, does anybody think five years out? I really (laughs) don't know. Is is that possible?
1: It is possible. And our our theory of change gives out 10 years. So we definitely... We have those ambitions, but, you know, I'll be honest, the further out in time, the more the ambitions get a little more special. Sure. I
0: mean, I, I always tell people,
1: <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I always tell people, if you're thinking more than 90 days out, it's all fiction, right? You know, it's, <laughs> right, it's really, right. but so, so tell us what, what does the future look like for you?
1: So one of the things we try to do here, and, and we're trying to walk the talk, we help institutions outside of ourselves examine how to activate the entire innovation system to unleash innovation in a collaborative way. And and just, you know, I think it's important to just put my definition of system on the table so listeners are reconciling it with their own, within a boundary that set of individuals, interactions, and an enabling environment that performs various functions an innovation system perspective, you're looking at those functions that relate to innovation, which, you know, Charles Edquist had that list of 10, their research development, but they're also use and application, etc. So we're helping institutions make sense of how they can activate systems. What that means internally in terms of where we want to be in the next five years, we want to be able to actually measure how the contribution of GKI in terms of Building the skill set, the tool sets, the mindset of individuals, institutions, and helping to shape enabling environments is actually triggering systems interactions sufficient enough to be measured as integrated systems change. And So it's
0: a small goal. It's a small goal. Right, right,
1: right, right. Yeah. yeah, super small and so much literature to guide us as to how the hell to do it. I was
0: just going to say, how do you even begin to do that? Like, go ahead, you tell me, you tell me
1: one you do some homework internally which i think has given us a whole new level of empathy for the institutions that we partner with in the name of institutional change half our staff in this sort of reading led homework to try to take a single component of a system and explore all of the indicators that could tell a story of systems change just within that system component so individuals institutions Interactions, i.e., networks and enabling environment. And then, where we hope to be in the next three months is to line up those specific indicators into something that would look like an integrated systems framework for evaluating our own work. And of course, optimally, we'd be uh, growing to a size that we could then have this framework applied on us by an external evaluator. That's really where we want to be. But for now, the construction looks like a lot of headbanging against walls. It looks like asking ourselves, how is it the field talks so much about systems change and there is so little in terms of comprehensive evaluation frameworks that guide it and that's a really really powerful lesson for us given how seriously we are moving in this space of systems change. So, it looks like learning, it looks like humility, ideally with that kind of systems framework scorecard for our own work, we can make choices that we don't know how to make right now.
0: As you're looking at continuing to grow into, you know, you know, the evolution of your organization, the evolution of how you approach this What are the disruptions that you're looking at or what has disrupted your ability to build these networks? And specifically, I'm interested in, you know, you've put on the table facilitation, you put on the table, you know, bringing communities together, you bring on the table, you know, sort of research in my ears, and I'm, this is not a dig by any stretch, you know, these are all sort of fairly standard, you know, human interaction kind of things. Are there other either technology processes stuff that accelerate that process or that, you know, allow you to create new and unique networks, you know, sort of, I'm, you know, obviously virtually these kinds of things. Like, so I'm, let me just stop there. But, you know, are there disruptions happening that allow networks to form, thrive, have change and impact?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think one of those that is happening increasingly, and this is, I think, sparked by a couple of particular trends, one, the shift toward crowdfunding and to the shift toward crowdsourcing of solutions through the mechanisms like grand challenges and challenge prizes, prize philanthropy generally, you now have a push from the top for more collaborative, democratized processes of innovation. So what does that mean then? I would say with challenge prizes in specific, this is a fetish. And it's happening across aid agencies from the UK to USAID, Grand Challenges Canada. They're everywhere. And they have tremendous results to show for themselves. Where Grand Challenges or the challenge approach creates a nudge for the kind of work GKI is doing, far, far less thinking has been given to the question of what about those Two thousand contenders that put their name in the hat along with their idea that don't win the challenge prize Mm -hmm. what do you do with that energy what do you do with that thirst to participate and innovate do you say thanks for playing and walk away which if if what you consider the greatest benefit of a challenge prize is you're paying for results that might be exactly what you do and frankly it is what many funders do or do you take a more network centric approach and say, given this volume, this magnitude of enthusiasm and the power to connect this constituency that has a shared interest in a topical domain that probably isn't going to be resolved even with your X prize or your largest prize coming from any one of these particular challenges because they're taking on increasingly complex challenge domains how do we activate a network around this? How do we Mm -hmm. activate a problem-solving network that is durable beyond the horizon of the prize? So I think that right there feels like a sort of canvas in which to introduce network design, facilitation, bring the conversation of network durability, incentives outside of prizes, You know, I'll say we're really excited right now to be working with OpenIDEO. We're jointly in an entity called the Innovation Resource Facility for the Government of Australia, which has a a love affair with challenges. But the Government of Australia is also saying, you know, we want to deepen our wisdom on what the post-prize nature of support is, and together with OpenIDEO, we're looking at things like alliances between prize contenders, open networks. And I think the thirst to bring value, to bring tools, to bring connections, to bring light touch facilitation into those spaces is really only just beginning to be tapped. So I think that's one pressure that may be quite meaningful for what we're trying to do. Hmm. The other one, it's, it's a little more US centric, but it has ripple effects globally there are these guidelines that Read like the sort of must-follow rubric for staff of the U.S. Agency for International Development. They're called the ADS guidelines. Last year, a new guideline was released called ADS 201. And for those that don't read every word of the ADS guidelines, I will encapsulate it.
0: I was just going to say I have I have not <laughs> I'm not I'm not well versed. No. You
1: know, that means you're reading maybe even more interesting pieces of literature, Stephen. <laughs> what it says in short that the log frame, which has been the sort of standard framework by which we connect things I'm going to do to the problem I'm going to solve to the activities, to the outputs, to the outcomes, and it's a very linear journey. The log frame is no longer holy. It no longer needs to be used by USAID staff, contractors, and the, the broader community of partners.
0: You've just, yeah, I what? think you've just destroyed. <laughs> the professional lives of like 90% of the people who listen to this show.
1: Um, let me give you hope. You just everyone. created, you
0: just created an incredible amount of instability. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No,
1: you see what I think it's a, it's a big disruption in its place. What ADS 201 speaks to is the need. It's not an option. It is the need to use tools, methods that allow for, making the connection between activities, projects and programs and systems impact. ADS-201 is long enough, it talks a bit about some of the complex adaptive systems being one particularly thorny context in which much of development activities occur. And there is really interesting work happening at USAID for complexity-aware monitoring and other initiatives that I think were influential in the design of ADS-201. But essentially, what it all boils down to is we are now in a new era where the entire ecosystem of USAID, its practitioners and partners need to, it's not an option, they need to look to alternative approaches to understand the system's effects of international development having built an organization that was born as a systems-focused shop, we've been wrestling with how to do that since we were born. And I shared our you know, our confession of how hard it is to do internally as an organization. But we have a lot to say when it comes to looking at systemic impacts of particular interventions. And so I think that creates another Space to connect up what 's happening in systems systems research to the pursuit of better aid effectiveness
0: what makes networks fail mm-hmm. you know I, right so, so thus far you know we're we've been talking for about forty minutes here, and obviously that you're passionate about it. this is something that you 've seen success and you've seen growth you've seen impact come out of these. I have to believe that you've seen your fair share of networks that start and crumple or never get off the ground or, you know, just are kind of sitting out there and they're never used. What are some of those pitfalls?
1: There are so many. And let me say one thing right off the bat, which is sometimes that's okay. Designing a network, you know, infinitely durable may not be the objective. And, And there's a property of networks, which is the emergent property, meaning the combination between actors or resources or phenomena that occur in the network is such that we can't predict it. Sometimes we can. Most of the time we can't. So with that sort of disclaimer to the side, a few of the sort of cardinal sins of network durability. One is a lack of shared vision. I think in, particularly, in particular when we begin with a mandate to have a network hitched to a time-bound donor-funded project, the odds are pretty high that when that funding goes away and the donor walks, the network is likely to disintegrate. So how do we avoid that? One, we need to work tirelessly on establishing a shared vision. Where we've seen great success, it doesn't look like just coming up with a shared mission statement in year one and presuming that that's going to hold up by year five. Rather, what it looks like is working through a set of participatory methods to rip apart the presumed guiding rationale for that network into many, many little pieces that tag to the thing I care about. So it's a finding the alignment between self-interest or particular institution's interest and the overall multitude of guiding objectives for the network. And then really importantly, coming back to that over and over and over again, not not to just unveil it for the umpteenth time, but to iterate on it because for each additional institution or partner to a network, there, what's in it for me is unique, which means yet again, you have to revisit the entire constellation of rationales that guide the network so that there's fidelity between what that newcomer to the network feels, what motivates them and what the sort of network is standing for. So shared vision and alignment of incentives is one. Two, I think the clarity around sort of resource acquisition and migration we learned this the hard way at gki that early on even as we said we weren't a funding agency but we we were here to cultivate and build problem solving networks and we have things like training and strategy support and systems research to help buoy that cause still the case people would say okay but no seriously but when are you going to start funding us Mm -hmm. and we (laughs) we become grossly explicit about this now and i I hear the question far less, but I think what it revealed to us is that knowing what resources to anticipate will be unleashed by other network partners or by if there's a network steward, is their job to find us money here in this network? Is it to help us understand that the institution that is also affiliated with this network has some great data that they can use? Establishing the sort of norms and expectations around resource acquisition and resource sharing get that right, it helps you. Get it wrong, it may be a reason things fall apart. So I would put those as two of the things that correspond with some of the network fails that we've observed.
0: Mm. Is there a way for us to understand how networks become, you know, just a de facto standard for, you know, the way their initiatives or organizations or... or I don't have a third thing there, like about how they work, you know, I guess, you know, one of the key things I like to learn on these podcasts is, you know, does the network ever become the, you know, embody the solution? Does it ever become the solution or do solutions come out of it? And where I'm really going, with it, is there a way to sort of standardize that so that, you know, you said earlier, you want to create facilitators who can build these networks, et cetera. And I'm just wondering how far down the path are you there? And, and is there a recipe?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish there were a single recipe, and I don't I don't think there is, but there are sort of general types of networks, and I think the first fork in the road for sort of what version of a network you're exploring is, are you looking to develop a knowledge network, which is really all about moving what is known to those that consider it an unknown and, and doing that in different ways? You know, we facilitate a knowledge network for the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition Gain. And it's focused on sort of moving knowledge on post-harvest food loss of nutritious foods between actors in Nigeria and specifically and globally. It's expanding now to Ethiopia, Indonesia, and elsewhere. There, the name of the game isn't an explicit defined set of problems that is going to be resolved through this network, but rather creating much more sort of porosity and transparency about a whole bunch of knowledge resources that could be grabbed by various actors in the network and used to their own specific ends so that's one flavor the other flavor the sort of explicit problem solving network is sort of tethering its account of impact to the problem goes away the problem is solved so i'd say to your question are we looking to a future where sort of networks are the solution Networks aren't the solution for that second bucket. The solution itself is what you're driving to. The durability and sort of expansion and greater volume, like velocity of knowledge products moving through a knowledge network, that might be the sort of end game for the knowledge network. So that's one fork in the road. I would say where we are um, trying to make some contribution to helping any of your listeners or actors in the field that wanna get better at building networks for their own agendas and in the problem spaces in which they work. We've recently been doing some, I think really interesting work around the question of decision-making. How are choices made by individuals and organizations that add up to improving innovation outcomes? And so in exploring this work, and this work came partly at the request of AGRA, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, they were sharing with us some of the challenges they felt they have had working with hundreds of thousands of smallholder farmers across Africa in terms of having consistent practices toward innovation that move from an Agra program manager all the way through the value chain from the farmer and back up. So we started working with them on building out a guide that that would sort of demystify what are some of the specific types of tools and methods you can use at different points in the decision-making journey that adds up to innovation. And while this guide and tool set isn't specifically being offered to network facilitators, a lot of the methodology that we use in network design lives within it. And it's sort of the, the sort of conceptual underpinnings of this work sit at the intersection of mindset, what actually is this mindset that makes us more effective as network facilitators and innovation stewards, systems thinking, and how to make that really hyper, hyper practical in the field, and creative thinking. How do we unlock opportunity when otherwise we feel deflated and defeated by these challenges we face day in and day out? So this improved innovation decision-making guide and tool set is, is our offering at the current moment to sort of answer this question.
0: I have two questions that I ask everybody on these innovation in this innovation series here to sort of close out the interview. The first one is, who do you pay attention to? Uh, and the easy answer is, you know, you're a part of these networks. You know, you've got all of these great constituents and, and people that you work with every day that where ideas bubble up. But I'm thinking mostly about, you know, are there particular magazines you read? Are there or blog posts you read? Are there Twitter feeds that you pay attention to, you know, to stay fresh, to get new ideas, to stay connected and push your work forward?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of what we we look at is the difference between sort of small, small I innovation and big transformational innovation, which, you know, means creation of new markets and new product, new service delivery, etc. And transformational innovation hails from standing at the intersection of a multitude of fields. So a lot of my inspiration comes from spaces and innovation and development. But some of it comes from yoga and and from dance and from wildlife photography. Nice. So, you, know, you know, I think our sources of inspiration need to break the boundary of just these fields where we put in our 12 hour days. So that's one thing. But in terms of specific to the spaces of innovation and systems and development, I love Bonnie Bonnerjee's work when it comes to thinking about sort of what makes an innovator? What are these characteristics that we are trying to cultivate in ourselves and others? And he's been really formative for us in thinking about tool sets in particular in our, our training work. SSIR, Stanford Social Innovation Review, I say this is both a proud cardinal, but also as one that feels that the collection of ideas that come through SSIR always kind of keep me on my toes and keep me engaged. That's a, it's kind of a quick win when I have time to pop in there. On the systems front, all roads seem to lead to Peter Senge, but as well, Tom McDermott and his team over at Georgia Tech are doing some really, really interesting work in systems of systems engineering and sort of thinking about the application of some very, very novel systems methodologies. And we are working together and sort of translating that into an international development space. But every time I speak to Tom, I I feel like the IQ increases by about 10 points. Another sort of current that I would really recommend to listeners to keep an ear to, there's a a small group inside of USA called EB4CLA. It's Evidence Base for Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting. It's a small tribe of folks really trying to ask, where is the evidence that doing any of this collaborating, learning, and adapting stuff, it all sounds so good, where is the evidence that stacks up against development outcomes? And so there's a fair amount of literature being generated by that group, but also existing publications being shared and sort of recommended for disruption. I always love Clayton Christensen. Who doesn't? But maybe the last one I put on the list, I realize this is a long list. Another thing I like to do is recommend to newcomers into GKI to spend some time in the innovation systems literature. And you know, having been familiar with that literature for a long time, I continue to find richness and new angles there. Some of the classic authors, Charles Edquist, Nelson, Freeman, Lundvall, the list is long. Some of them are still publishing, some no longer so. But I think that's an incredibly important area, especially with respect to the intersection of thinking about systems how systems spark innovation and then looking at this nexus with networks. So the innovation systems literature specifically still holds so much value.
0: I really, really appreciate the extensive list that you just put on the table there. That's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I do this. It's just, it's, you know, you've just put a network on the table, right? I mean, it's this sort of listed network, but wow. I mean, how much can we learn from all those people that you just put on the table? Thank you. Last question for you is because you have a privileged position of interacting with these networks all around the world, you know, within your organization that you run, is there an innovation, a process, a shiny new object that, you know, you think is, just super cool, maybe a game changer, but maybe it's just really cool. And you think it, you know, it needs to get a little more light. Something that you want to give a shout out to that mm-hmm. you want other people to know about.
1: Gosh, there are so many, and I I try not to get swept up with fads. So what tends to excite me are sort of rebellious models that feel like the script is getting flipped, the paradigm is being inverted. So one of the ones that I'm I'm really intrigued by, I hope. Hope it can become a feasible standard is something called regenerative agriculture. and we just published this big big report on what future innovations going out 20 years actually might look like for reimagining agriculture in the developing world in particular. We did this together with the Rockefeller Foundation and about fifty awesome organizations around the world that were willing to be roped in at our request one of the coolest models that we explore in that study is something called regenerative agriculture and it's the idea of an agricultural model that not only still gives you high levels of productivity and and high yields and nutritional foods but the act of agriculture itself putting the carrot in the ground it doesn't remove nutrients from the soil it literally leaves the soil better than it was it is an idea of agriculture so different from large-scale industrial agriculture as practiced in the United States and elsewhere right now. It is almost, for me, difficult to imagine it being a global standard, but how extraordinary, how revolutionary if in a place like Africa where 80% of the population exists through subsistence agriculture, if that act not only fed your family, created a sustainable livelihood, but actually made the earth the land the landscapes itself in better condition i found so much hope learning about this model and actually talking to a scientist recently who's exploring exactly that so i think it's so cool worth all of us doing a little bit of googling about regenerative agriculture and doing what we can to see if a model like this could be tested and gosh let's hope scaled
0: sarah what a passionate conversation i really appreciate your time and i want to just thank you for bringing all this to the show today
1: Thank you so much and thank you for all of the amazing conversations you've curated Stephen. I've I've learned a lot from you and your other guests. So such an honor.
0: You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.